0: DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers, featuring a variety of different plans, starting at as little as $8.99 per month It's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at DVD.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. A film critic for publications such as LA Weekly, New York Magazine, Vulture, The New York Times, and formerly The Village Voice, the brilliant Bilga Ibiri is one of my favorite journalists working today. Additionally, he is a writer-director who's known for the films New Guy, Purse Snatcher, and for assistant directing The Barber of Siberia bilga thank you so much for being here how has summer been treating you this year
1: summer's been okay uh as i was telling you earlier I, i'm i'm in my house where my acs are currently not working uh so <laughs> it's it's very hot and very muggy and you're gonna hear me drinking a lot of water um during this episode um and uh and if we get far enough in the episode and the water turns lukewarm i might have to go and get some ice but otherwise i'm, I'm doing okay
0: You know, it's perfect because of, uh, you know, bodily fluids and purity of essence. You know, Mm -hmm. you could have just said, Jen, I'm like going method for this and (laughs) and people would have believed you, Vilga. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If only I had if only we had some rainwater. uh, (laughs) Right. It's not hasn't it was supposed to rain earlier today. And I don't know if it did. I heard the thunder, but I didn't actually see any rain.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, we should say as we're recording this, it is Fourth of July weekend. So it is very, very hot. He is in New York City. I am in Phoenix. So it's a different kind of heat. But yeah, very hot for sure. And I always think of you when I think of uh, Barry Lyndon or when it's on or I see a clip because I know how much you love it. And of course, you are a Kubrick fan. So what is it? Do you remember like the first Stanley Kubrick movie that, you know, captured your imagination or what is it about him that first drew you in?
1: Well, I can tell you what the first Kubrick movie I saw was. It was 2001, A Space Odyssey, Um, and it was uh it was in the 70s and it was in Turkey. I was I was very young Um and my parents took me to see it, telling me it was Star Wars
2: <laughs>
1: because Star Wars hadn't arrived in Turkey yet. Okay. But we all knew about it. We knew that Star Wars was coming in. In fact, I think my dad had um, my, my dad used to travel to the UK a lot. And I think he brought back, um, if I remember correctly, he had brought back these um, Star the, the Star Wars action figures. Some of the Star Wars action oh, wow. figures. So I had like the action figures and like the comic book and all this stuff before I actually saw the movie. Um, but I don't remember if, they, if I had all that stuff before they took me to see 2001, but I remember seeing 2001. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like Star Wars, you know, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, so I, but I do remember, and I remember I was really taken with how, um, and the concept of the computer that had, you know, memories and a life and stuff like that. Um, and I mean, it's it's funny because I'm like, did I, did I even know what a computer was? I must've had some idea because not for years later that I actually see a computer. but, um, but yeah, so that was, you know, I don't remember too much about it, but I remember the apes, I remember the monolith, I remember, you know, the robot, I remember, I remember the, the space um, outfits, the, the, the astronauts outfits, which I thought were really cool looking. Um, uh, so, so I remember that as far as um, Kubrick in general, you know, I mean, I, I've said this before, I can't remember if I've said this on your pod, but you know, I grew up, you know, the, the child of film buffs and yeah. especially my dad, who was a big film buff. So we always had film books lying around. We always had film books on the shelves, film magazines and things like that. And we had a lot of Kubrick books, you know, we had the making of 2001. We have, we had a couple of books about um, his work in general. I mean, this is, you know, early eighties um, at this point. And, you know, we had, we had the, the, you know, we had these books. So I always knew the name, like, you know, ever since I've had memories, I, I can remember the name Stanley Kubrick and I and I exactly. knew that that was an important filmmaker. Um and then also I saw The Shining, uh also when I was very young. I was like nine, I think, um, when I saw The Shining, and it was one of those, you know, I was a latchkey kid. Um, I didn't uh you know, I didn't have a babysitter or anything like that. I came home from school. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents worked late, so I was just home. Uh yeah. You know, I mean, after fifth grade sixth grade seventh grade I mean it was yeah I was I was home you know um by myself and The Shining came on you know one of those afternoon movies um that we used to have back in the day and and I watched it and I knew it was like I knew that it was a Stanley Kubrick movie like I knew that image of um Jack Nicholson uh so so it was in my mind somehow, I don't know if it would have been, I would have seen it on a video shelf or something like that. Yeah. Or maybe just in the books that we had the at books. home. You know? yep. But I, but I, but I knew that movie and I, I saw it and I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. It was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. And not because of the, you know, the jump scares or even the tension in the movie, but mm-hmm. just the idea when you're that young, um, the idea of a, of a father trying to kill his son was, yes. Just, that's just, that's, <laughs> Very visceral, visceral fear. Um mm-hmm. and um yeah, and so I was just really uh really taken with that. Uh at some point I understood that the same person had made these movies. Um, uh, I think I probably saw, you know, I remember I saw Full Metal Jacket in theaters when it came out. I, at that point I, I can't remember if I'd seen the others. I, I don't think I would have seen um I wouldn't have seen Paths of Glory or uh The Killing. Um I, I hadn't seen Barry Lyndon. I know that because I remember when I saw Barry Lyndon. Um, so, and I probably hadn't seen A Clockwork Orange at that point. Maybe I saw it around that time. But but I remember, you know, 87, I see Full Metal Jacket in theaters. Um, uh, and, you know, all these films, all these films mm-hmm. make an impression. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I and mean, with Kubrick, it's, it's interesting because he doesn't have a huge filmography, you know, No. Um, so, and then I remember, I mean, I remember when I saw Spartacus, it was during the big restoration, it, um, which was I think late eighties, um, early nineties. Um, I, I was in DC when it came. So I wasn't in college yet, but um, I remember seeing it at the, um, at the uh, uptown theater in DC, which ironically was also where 2001 had had its uh, world premiere. It was this huge, wow. huge theater. That's since closed down, but I guess it's going to be coming back somehow, maybe. Um, but um, enormous, enormous screen. I mean, before I before I saw an IMAX screen, it was the biggest screen I'd ever seen, and I loved going to that theater. Uh, and when Spartacus came, it it opened there, and it was it was wonderful to see.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I was trying to think while I was listening what was the first one that I saw, and I think it actually might have been The Killing because I was a fan of classic movies and film noir, and I used to you know, go to the movie store and look at the classics. And I remember getting into crime movies. And I think The Killing, Asphalt Jungle, like all of those right after Reservoir Dogs came out, it was like, oh, we got to see what he was stealing from. So I kind of think The Killing might have been it. But Dr. Strangelove was probably the first movie that I remember seeing in my first intro to film class in college. I was 16 and our professor kept stopping it like every minute he'd gone to afi and boy did he like to let you know he went to afi like every it was becoming a joke like how many times is he gonna say back at afi you know and you almost wanted to like make a tally and um so he kept i don't know maybe 10 times in the opening credits like here's what it's doing like it's sexual do you guys get that it's sexual and it's like yes and um so even though he totally destroyed the rhythm of Dr. Strange love, it was just, you know, mind blowing. And I loved it. And I love Peter Sellers. So I remember after I saw that, I really wanted to seek out all of the other Kubrick movies that I had missed. I think this was that would have been in like 97. I think around Eyes Wide Shut was when they had that box set that came mm-hmm. out of uh like I can see it on the shelf of all the movies and one of my friends uh had a better job and so he owned the set and like loaned it to me and I remember just going through all of the films and yeah for whatever reason I had not seen The Shining I think I had seen Full Metal Jacket I grew up in a house where my dad loved war movies Mm -hmm. so I'm pretty sure like I would have seen that but I don't know why I didn't associate it with Kubrick until I rewatched it probably in the late 90s but yeah. And then, of course, I remember when Eyes Wide Shut came out because it had the best movie trailer ever mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Chris Isaac and Baby Did a Bad, Bad Thing. And, you know, you had the Cruise and Kidman and it, yeah, you can see that trailer in your mind. Mm-hmm. And I remember just everybody thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be the most, you know, X-rated movie ever, or the most extreme. And, and uh, it was really thoughtful. And, of course, because it's Kubrick. And I think the last one that I saw that I hadn't was probably Spartacus and then a couple of his like really early stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paths of Glory is one of my favorites. And I'm one of those people who like, whenever somebody talks about Kubrick, I'll be the first person to bring up Paths of Glory because I'm nerdy about that movie, but yeah, just a big fan. So I was excited to talk to you about these.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, I mean, it's funny it, it does remind me of how different access can be uh for yeah. different um you know I, i'll use the word generations uh but 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 you know cuz i remember you know seeing this these films i mean the shining was available on video um the Full Metal jacket came out and was later available on video 2001 was mm-hmm. um and doctor strange was but like Paths of glory and the killing um yeah or killer's kiss or or yeah, fear and desire, desire. Yeah. impossible to see i remember um fear and desire <laughs> uh years later this, this you know years later in the early days of the internet um i tracked down a copy of fear and desire uh so i had seen fear and desire in college because um the um, the guy who ran the Yale uh, Film Study Center it was a man named Michael Kerbel lovely guy still around um, and he uh, he had a print of Fear and Desire and this was wow. when this was when, I mean Kubrick was still alive and and you know you were not allowed to show Fear and Desire anywhere he, he had had all copies of that movie removed
3: mm-hmm.
1: he had a sixteen millimeter print of Fear and Desire. Um, <laughs> just like sitting on his shelf. And, and it was funny because, because uh, I asked Michael, I mean, I was like, how does this happen? And, and, and this part of the story is tangential, but he had been, his uncle had been Kubrick's dentist. Um, and back when Kubrick, I think still lived in the, in, in New York or right around the time of, of, of 2001. So he had moved to the UK, but I guess he still came back occasionally uh, and, and, either st- still saw the same dentist or would still had a relationship with a dentist or what, but when Michael had applied to Columbia film school, mm-hmm. or, well, either Columbia film school or just Columbia, um, uh, Kubrick wrote his recommendation. Wow. <laughs> um, cause, cause he had, a, he had, he had uh, like lunch with Kubrick, uh, you know, his, his uncle had arranged it. and he's, I mean, Michael at this point is a teenager. Um, and mm-hmm. he'd just seen, 2001 and he was telling kubrick about how much he loved it and and actually kubrick he said all throughout the lunch all he wanted to know was how was the projection how was the sound was, was like <laughs> proper like he was just like really precise about just like those were the things he was curious i mm-hmm. didn't care about whether he loved it or not but then michael said something to said something to him like you know, when I saw, first saw Dr. Strangelove, I loved it so much, I went home and immediately wrote like a 20-page essay about it. And Kubrick was like, oh, and Michael, by the way, when he said that, he was lying.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then Kubrick was like, oh, great, send it to me. And so like Michael went home and had to like write this essay on Dr. Strangelove and then sent it to Kubrick. And then Kubrick very graciously wrote his his um, college recommendation. Uh, and Oh, uh, Wow but so then years a few years later michael was had got you know like his first job out of college was at a, um at a um at a you know 16 millimeter film rental place and the guy was was um you know for his first day on the job the guy was like showing him around the vault and michael saw this print of fear and desire there and he was like what is this? And the guy was like, Oh yeah. says so I, you know, somebody left that here. I've had it for years. Nobody wants it. I'll give it to you for like five bucks if you want. So, so Michael bought that print from him. And that was for many years, the only known print of fear and desire in existence. And in fact, MoMA had a print, a 35 millimeter print of fear and desire. They had struck it from Michael's 16 millimeter print. Um,
2: no way. Wow.
1: Yeah. And eventually I think they found the negative or something at Eastman house eventually found, and, and, you know, obviously now you can like get it on Blu-ray, but for mm-hmm. a long time, it was like the hardest thing to see. <laughs> um, but you know, I watched it, you know, on 16 millimeter in college, uh, and then, um, and then, yeah. And then uh, for a while, it was like bootleg videotapes of it floating around and, um, but yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's funny. Like this, the thing of access is so, mm-hmm. so funny. Like once, once that, you know dvd box set of all those kubrick films showed up it was like such yeah. a i mean i i still have the box like i i've since upgraded <laughs> the various discs with like blu-rays or 4ks and stuff but i kept the box
0: <laughs> so, yeah it was an amazing yeah that yes yeah. oh that that's incredible my goodness wow So you were in, it's, was this like an event? Everybody got to see it at Yale, the 16, or did you just like sneak it out of his office? No, no, I
1: I asked Michael, I was like, Hey, can I see it? And he's like, sure. Uh, And so another friend of mine who was also a big Kubrick fan, we just sat in this, they had this tiny little projection room Oh my or something. We just sat there, you know, Michael operated the, the, um, the projector or maybe my friend my I was with my friend John who was also working as a projectionist at Yale so I, he might have operated the projector I can't remember but no it was just us watching it um that's incredible no but at, at that time nobody else knew and uh, you know it was like yeah yeah I mean people knew who Kubrick was but you know you were like oh fear and desire they had no you know, I you have yeah. to sort of I mean especially then you have to be into the lore
2: yeah really,
1: what a rare thing this was yeah um, so yeah so it was just us
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that story. Well, the movies that we chose, I mean, obviously, we could have chosen any of the films and had a lot to say about all of them. And I'm sure we're going to reference, you know, all of these other movies as we go. But we selected Dr. Strange Love, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon and The Shining. So I am excited to talk about these with you. Take it away on Dr. Strangelove. Do you remember that first viewing at all?
1: You know, I was just, as we were talking, I was trying to remember when I'd seen it because I had seen it by the time I saw Fear and Desire. I'm uh, no, uh-huh. sorry, by, by the time I'd seen Full Metal Jacket, I, I had seen Dr. Strangelove. I don't remember the first time I saw it. I mean, it would have been on video, um, yeah. you know, sometime when I was in my early teens because, I mean, 87, Full Metal Jacket. I'm, I'm, you know, 14 years old at that point. So I would have seen it yeah. Um But, um, you know, I, I still think it's, I still think it's probably the funniest movie I've ever seen. And and I, I mean, I returned to it every time I come back to it, it's never not funny. And I know some people say, oh, it's, you know, the, the humor is outdated. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking
2: about. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of jokes that don't quite land. I don't know that they ever really landed, but like, whatever, um, but I will say, you know, years later, I, I, I wrote something on, um, on Dr. Love, and, and I went back into, I, mean, I did a lot of research on, on the film, but also I went back into um, the novel, the, the Red Alert, and I read the novel by Peter George. And, um, and I was really struck by how much, how, how, um, how faithful the, the movie is to the novel. Um, really? That's... It's really faithful. It's the novel is not a comedy. The novel is no, dead no. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you know, I mean, everybody knows the story at this point of like Kubrick had started to adapt the novel, you know, seriously, but as he worked on it, he just realized how absurd it was. Yeah. But when you see when you read the book, you know, a lot of the exchanges are the same, the scenes are basically the same, the intercutting is the same. Um, the names are different because you know Kubrick yeah. was that Swiftian thing of like finding funny names for people. Funny but, people, yeah. But but the but the book is, you know, every scene feels like it's edging towards comedy and stops just short of comedy. And, it's, <laughs> and this is obviously the the response of somebody who has seen Doctor Strange. That's reading true. So, yeah, so you, you you're much more attuned to the comic material in the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is. You know, it's like it's like every scene ends right before it slips into total absurdity. Mm-hmm. But it's there; it's it's still there, and, and and it's hard to tell if Peter George is aware of how kind of ridiculous and surreal this whole thing is, um, or if he's just kind of following things to their natural conclusion. He had been an RAF officer, so he knew he knew his stuff. Um, oh yeah, and um, and it's a it's a. You know that, I mean that was a real revelation that that like Kubrick didn't have to do that much to turn it into a comedy.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: obviously there's you know Dr Strangelove the character is not in it yeah no. that that stuff is different but but there is um you know, there is a real kind of um there is a sense throughout the film that like this could happen. It's hilarious and it's yeah. ridiculous and these people mm-hmm. have ridiculous names. But this totally could happen. <laughs> um, and, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating, you know?
0: Yeah. And some of that came from history and Eisenhower and the idea of that this could happen if there was uh, an event, you know, they could put this plan R or whatever they named it uh, into effect. And also the idea, and of course, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that uh, I think it when I was doing research, it said that even uh, President John F. Kennedy thought that, you know, if people were level headed enough, they would not, but madness was probably going to be one of the things, or accident, or just some sort of catastrophic something that yeah. would cause this to happen. And sure enough, it's madness. So I think, you know, you have some intelligent people thinking about what could go wrong. And uh, Kubrick read, when I was uh, watching a documentary about it, over 50 books on nuclear war at the time, thinking, you know, this could all take place. I mean, it is, you know, as the movie opens, it has that big warning, you know, the military says this could never take place, or there are safeguards and stuff like that. But it is eerie, the more you read about it, and the more you think about some of the stuff that Went on and where the stuff came from. That, yeah, I mean, they didn't go like the fail safe route, the Lumet route. I didn't realize that Kubrick had sued to try to like push that film from getting made or released around the same time to kind of preserve uh, the box office of this movie, even though this was a comedy and that was obviously the dramatic role um with Henry Fonda and some of those uh, heavyweights in that film. Um, what I was going to say is I saw Dr. Strangelove after I had already seen um, the Pink Panther movies Engaging mm-hmm. when you probably saw this. Had you already seen like The Party yeah. and the Pink? OK.
1: Yeah. Um, and in fact, that's probably, you know, I probably saw Dr. Strangelove first as a Peter Sellers movie because, because yes. we were big yeah. Peter Sellers fans in our house. And we'd see yep. all, you know, all the Pink Panther movies, heavy rotation in our house. Yeah being there and all those movies. So I'm sure that at some point I probably saw Doctor Strange Love like not as a Kubrick movie, but as like, oh, here's Peter Sellers doing his thing, you know.
0: Yep. That was kind of me the first yeah. time. It was like, ooh, Sellers is playing three roles. Like Eddie Murphy, you took that idea or you know, when you were watching it in the 90s and thinking about People playing multiple roles. I hadn't seen the lead yet, so I hadn't seen him uh, take on these other personas, and I hadn't seen some of his British work where he would do that sort of thing again and again. Uh, it to was... be
1: fair, he stole it from Alec Guinness, who did it in yes. Kind and the and they had worked together and other Ealing movies. So I feel like there's like a tradition in, of, yes. in British funny men doing that. But yeah. Yeah,
0: it's so great. I know. I love it. And I love thinking um, he almost played the Slim Pickens part, but it's impossible when you see it and you see Slim Pickens. The most hilarious thing on the documentary that I watched that was on the Criterion set, I'm sure you've seen it, was um, when they were talking about how hesitant all of these stars were to do any kind of publicity or interviews and so uh the man that was like the last cast and the least likely to be the one selling your picture slim pickens was the one they like put on the tonight show and did a bang up job and like you know was an amazing uh, front man for the film and i thought that was great yeah
1: yeah it's um it's funny you mentioned the, the fail safe thing um yeah, I mean Kubrick basically killed Fail Safe. Um, <laughs> yes, and uh, and it's sad. I, I you know I I love Fail Safe too. I, I actually, think it's a great film. Yeah, it's a great film. I, I did the Criterion essay for Fail Safe. Um, oh wow, it's uh, you know, and I read that book too. Now here's the thing: Peter George felt that the Fail Safe guys, if I remember correctly, had stolen his yes. his his book, mm-hmm. um, his idea, and and I think I think he had a case. Okay. Um, And yeah. And I think fail safe was maybe shot before strange love. Um, but, but, you know, Kubrick, you know, Kubrick, the same studio, it's Columbia. Um, and so, uh, so it was kind of a, well, you know, you have to one or the other, you know, um, and I think they probably made the right decision, but in, you know, it's it's sad how failsafe kind of became seen as almost like the foil to Doctor Strange I
0: know when it is um, its own thing for sure. It is
1: very much its own thing, and yeah. you know, Lumet is a great filmmaker. But it yes. was kind of,
0: you know, it,
1: it, I mean, Lumet struggled. I think his whole career with with the uh, the notion that he wasn't, you know, a, a a visionary stylist in the mold of Kubrick, and I, and I sometimes I wonder if like the 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 Dr. Strangelo fail-safe controversy because you know if you watch Lumet's films he is clearly a visionary oh god yeah Mm -hmm.
2: um
1: you know he's not a you know he, he I mean he's not he's doing something very different than Kubrick but um but he's very much you know he very much has his his imprint and his sensibility and um and it's and you see that in in fail mm-hmm. Um uh, and it was you know one of his earlier movies so it's it's a little different than say some of the other uh some of the later Lumet films but yeah um but you know it, it it's interesting to see the two different approaches uh you know the the, the humanist approach of Lumet and then
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know Kubrick's third yeah absurd, almost anti-human you know um yeah I mean, that sounds like a knock it's not um but you know the the, the way that Kubrick tells the story is you know from this kind of olympian perspective of watching these people do these utterly ridiculous things and of course at some point you've come to the realization oh right that i mean this is us um yeah right and 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 that's i mean that's kind of one of the things that all of kubrick's films turn on there is this you know
0: human nature
1: yeah Yeah, i mean the critics knock them for being cold i never found found them cold i actually found them incredibly moving
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um but but that requires you to at some point understand that he's talking about you right yes That he's talking about us Mm -hmm. uh he's talking about humans and it's that sort of you know the, the film itself yeah as a physical object might not be all that humanistic but the exchange between the viewer and the film creates a humanistic response, um, and uh, and you know Doctor Strangelove is is one of those. I mean, the, the, it's still utterly harrowing, you know, um, mm-hmm. while also being very funny. Um, yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean the performances are amazing. Uh, I was just uh, on Twitter. Talking about the George C. Scott of it all, I think George C. Scott, you know, this is so different from what you think of when you think of also Sterling Hayden, but uh, George C. Scott is so over the top. And when I was watching, uh, you know, he talks about how um, James Earl Jones was recounting this and other people that basically Kubrick was telling him uh, these takes were a warm-up, being over-the-top, like, let's just do one over-the-top or extreme, and mm-hmm. then he would play all the other ones uh, more of an even keel, and those were the ones he would print would be the the extreme ones. I love it. I mean, there's a scene where he, he trips, and he keeps going, he hits the ground, and he gets any... He is just amazing in this movie. And also, I didn't realize how much of it was ad-libbed by Peter Sellers, like some of the most famous lines and scenes. My favorite scene in the movie is the Dimitri phone call. You know, I'm as sorry as you are. And I think in the script it said he was supposed to be reading that like a progressive elementary school teacher or second or something like that was in the the direction um, in the script. And he started like that. And then, you know, it gets more defensive. And it is about human nature. And I was reading some of the reviews of the time saying you know is this anti-american is it anti-military is it anti-people and it is it's anthropologic a, a little bit it's kind of looking at what would go wrong and what who we are and what we do and yeah i think it's a great film it's one you're going to see something different in every time you watch
1: yeah. yeah and and you know every one of those characters or each one of those characters is a type played yes. to played to the hilt Yes. Um, and the, this chemical combination of all these types sort of colliding is, is terrifying, right? Because, I mean, if you look at George C. Scott, he's kind of the, the, the gung-ho career military guy. Yes. Um, he's not crazy. No. Sterling so is crazy, no. but. You know, he actually, you know, George e. Scott represents the establishment. And what's scary about him is, you know, the establishment. To them. Yeah, Ripper Ripper might be might be nuts, but like, hey, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> maybe we needed a maybe we needed a crazy guy to yeah. kick us off our get us off our feet. You know, yes. like there's that With sort the of the
0: like, Yes
1: yeah i mean like he admires ripper like Mm -hmm. there's a certain kind of admiration for ripper Mm -hmm. um and and i I think this is very much a kind of um you know post-war ethos of sort of these like you know the fetishization of these sort of unhinged general military types you know of whom had you know emerged as heroes during the war um you know, there's this 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 real kind of sense of heroism to those types. And yeah. I think Kubrick recognizes that, oh, these, these oh these are the people that are going to get us all killed. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's something that. Um, you know, it, it, it also has repercussions in Vietnam, you know, like.
2: Absolutely. You know, Just a lot like of these people away.
1: Yeah. A lot of these people don't wind up getting us killed in a thermonuclear exchange. They do wind up getting us into Vietnam, you know, yes. Um And and so the other thing about Dr. Strangelove that that's always struck out at me is uh, uh, is that, you know, it feels so much of its time, not not in a bad way, not in a dated way, but it feels like it's it's capturing. It's capturing the way things were. Mm -hmm. Um, It's capturing the zeitgeist of the time right on the cusp of the 60s. I mean, it's 1963. Is it 63 or 64? It, it it's post-Kennedy assassination, so I think it's 64, maybe. Um, but but it, you know, but before the 60s become the 60s, right? Before yeah. before like the, the madness of the late 60s,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and before Vietnam is you know out of control. So it's or capturing easy rider the rider
0: to go with Terry Southern, yeah. Right,
1: right, right. It, it, so so it's really capturing that moment, but within it, you can see the seeds of what happens to. Mm the United States into the world afterwards uh, and that's why it's kind of a remarkable movie um, like it, it contains within it both the past and the present and the future um,
2: yeah.
1: and this is true I think of a lot of Cooper I mean, you know, from 2001 <laughs> you know it was yes. a perfect example of that right um, and, uh, and yeah I, you know it's um, but like because you know we talked about George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden um, but you know Peter Sellers is Merkin Muffly, President Merkin Muffley is such a great caricature of a totally ineffectual liberal progressive type. I mean yes. And he, he looks like Adley Stevenson, I you know.
0: know. Yeah, and I guess in Stevenson's book he denied it. Like I wasn't well known enough, but it but it is definitely he for president of type.
1: twice to you know yeah. I mean, yeah. now, twice in a row, you know. So everybody knew who he was. Um, yes,
0: exactly. I I also love that you know it's these insular worlds this claustrophobic these these rooms that are kind of small that you can't penetrate that's something with kubrick the secrecy of what goes on in these little rooms Mm -hmm. um or these secret societies which you're going to see in like um eyes wide shut or on these spaceships or in these uh so you know you have the war room one of my favorite characters and she's in it um like off screen a little or on the other end of a phone call. And then in it is the one female in the entire film, Tracy Reed, Carol Reed's uh, stepdaughter uh, is amazing. in her one, you know, cause she has this voice she's using for George C. Scott, who's her lover slash she's the secretary. And then what well, general, you know, and she puts on the secretary voice on the phone. And I think she is hilarious, but it also by having her in there, it kind of shows you like, he's going to mosey on down to the war room. So there are these rooms that you can't get in. And it's a film where there's basically like three sets. You know, you have um, the the bomber up there with uh, James Earl Jones and Slim Pickens. And then you have the war room. And then you have where uh, Sterling Hayden and uh, Mandrake are um, <laughs> waiting out uh, their the orders until, um, you know, there's going to be um chaos there and so i i love that because it kind of sets up you're going to see it in clockwork orange and barry linden these houses or these places where people are and so yeah it's kind of kubrick entering that uh arena and this motif that would go throughout all of his films kind of yeah
1: yeah and he had you know he had ken adam as his production designer on on all these films um not all of them, but, but most of them, and and you know Ken Adam also did like James Bond movies and stuff. But you know he's That's a true. really great, really great production designer, and kind of you know turns each of these spaces into something so distinctive. Yeah. Um, and you know the films are all about the breakdown of communication. I mean, this yep. Doctor Strangelove especially is about the breakdown <laughs> of communication. Um, which, by the way, failsafe also and failsafe is also yep. that right um, mm-hmm. and. Um, so, but like in presenting each space as so distinctive and so very much its own thing, mm-hmm. um, you enhance that sense that these these are entirely different worlds and they're not communicating with each other and uh, mm-hmm. and it's going to get us all killed. Um, you know, and, and it, it is funny. I mean, Kubrick is, you know, he's working in the age before... Um, you know, before, obviously before cell phones, but also just before just constant, constant communication between everybody. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he, he finds, he gets so much mileage out of, out of the, you know, the inability of different people to communicate right down to the, you know, the, the, the payphone gag and the Coke machine. Yes. And all that, you know, um, <laughs> but like, you know, that would have yeah. been, a, that would have been a solution. Like you need a quarter, like,
2: you
1: know um so yeah
0: yeah that's great and um again these sort of um distinctive worlds kind of his first one of this sort of uh, science fiction era uh then it was 2001 and then our next film a clockwork orange which i read the novel after i saw the film for the first time and, of course, everybody talks about that last chapter, and I agree, I think Kubrick's ending is better, but I'm still haunted by the ending of the novel, because um I think that's, you know, what actually happens in life, is people do these horrific things sometimes when they're younger, and then they, uh, and we don't know. And so it, it's very eerie. Um it's a phenomenal film. It's one I've only seen twice and I'm happy with that. Like I saw it when it was uh, when it was in that box set that my friend Chris borrowed me in the late 90s. Um, now he was being a little bit uh, sinister because Singing in the Rain is one of my three favorite movies of all time. And I knew about that scene. But of course, you know, knowing about the scene and seeing it are two different yeah. things. And so um, the film kind of stayed with me for over 20 some years. And so when I watched it again, I was amazed at how much I remembered. And there were a few things, of course, I, I did not. But this is a movie that kind of imprints on your brain. And it's so singular and so much its own thing. Like you're not shaking it for sure. Yeah.
1: Let me ask you. So what was your. How did it play for you this time?
0: Um, you know, I still I admire it. I think it's a brilliantly uh, conceived film. Again, Mm -hmm. it's raising these questions about what are we doing and um, as a society. And also, it became, I think it's a darker viewing uh, now than it was in the late 90s. Like it seemed far enough away. And now that I'm watching it uh, in these sort of with these the way the world is at the point of, you know, guns and things. We we had an attempted coup and like all of this stuff that happened and the idea of, uh, you know, the drugs turning into police. And, you know, watching this today, it was watching this now. I'm like, oh, I wonder if Jordan Harper was a fan, you know, because uh, yeah. that kind of goes throughout my buddy's fiction. Yeah. And so, um, you know, watching it today was, I think, little eerier also I'm older and so I've been exposed to more in the world um so yeah I still think it's a brilliant film it's one I I'm fine if I don't watch it for another 20 years I gotta be honest but um but yeah it I think it was a little harder to watch maybe I think I was so shocked then Mm. and I'm shocked now but for different reasons if that makes sense Yeah. yeah how about you
1: you know, I mean, I, I I do love it. It's it's one of those Kubrick films. I I come back to less nowadays than I mm-hmm. used to. I mean, I used to watch Clockwork Orange all the time, and it was I mean, it was also a film that would show up on like like midnight screenings and stuff, and I would go yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I love it, and I and I and when I watched it again, it had been several years since I'd seen it. Um, I, I rewatched it a couple of nights ago, and and the thing. I was reminded of how much I used to really love this movie. Um, you know, but the thing that I hadn't really thought about too much, because obviously I wasn't, I wasn't alive yet when that movie came out. Um, I, you know, I I saw it much later, but, um, but it also like Dr. Strange love, it feels like a film very much of its time and place. Yes. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: the sixties are over. Um,
0: but it's mod, I mean, kind of like mod. Yeah, it's mod, yeah. but it's like,
1: but like the licentiousness of the '60s—they're yeah. kind of over. And and you know, the the Manson killings have happened. I mean, there mm-hmm. is this sense that you know, youth culture has gone too far. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because you know so much of the the dark
0: underbelly yeah
1: yeah so much of the 60s was and honestly so much of the 50s was i mean this is the boomers right this is is like a generation this is the biggest generation in history um and so but there was this sense at the end of the 60s beginning of the 70s that like we've got to these we got to let these stop these young people from just doing whatever the fuck they want (laughs) society's gonna go down the tube, and it's funny to see the film kind of Tap into that sort of anxiety. Um, you know, but but obviously because of the nature of the story, it's questioning the the attempt to try and change that, yes. right? Yes.
0: And How do you and do, do it where do you go. Yeah. yeah what right do we have? Yeah. But also it's such a kind of um,
1: you know, it's 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 a, again a film that is in some ways anti-humanist. Yep. Right. But there are all these little moments that are so terrifying and, oh, and God. Mm-hmm. right. And, and and he's very much aware of, I mean, look, Kubrick is, I mean, this film got him into trouble, right? Um, he, yeah.
0: mm-hmm. there were a
1: lot of people, I mean, it was a very controversial film when it came out, he actually you know, it. Defend, defended it in, in newspapers and things like that in the U S but then in the UK, he pulled it after
3: mm-hmm.
1: he was personally threatened. Um, and yeah. he, it didn't get shown in the UK until after he died. Um, mm-hmm. and, but, you know, this is a man who at this point has withdrawn to a certain extent. I mean, it was actually, you know, it was in the wake of 2001, he becomes kind of the, the sort of the more mythical Stanley Kubrick, right? The guy who mm-hmm. doesn't give interviews and the guy who isn't seen in public and who's kind of withdrawn. Some of that is because Two thousand and one is so huge, and he just gets so much attention that he's a little worried. Um, but also, mm-hmm. he's he was very publicity shy. I mean, he oh, had stories yeah. about how, you know, he would just like uh, you know before the press conference for Doctor Strange Love, you know, he was just like vomiting his brains out, and you know, he's yeah. he, he had like real sort of stage fright in that sense. Um, but um, but you know, he, this is a man with a lot of anxiety uh, and a lot of fear. He's got three daughters, you know, mm-hmm. he's he, he's worried. Um, so the horrible things being shown in Doctor in a clockwork orange while they're being played for laughs at various points. It's so clear that the person making the movie is horrified by this. Stuff. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and, and that's, that's what I find so moving about the film is that, is that like, and this is, I mean, again, this is kind of true of all Kubrick movies or especially, I think especially the ones we're going to be talking about today, but like, the object, the film itself is not necessarily the whole story, mm-hmm. right? He's creating something, but he's aware that your relationship to it is going to be the thing that determines whether it moves you. Yes. Or. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the object itself is repellent in a certain ways. I mean, it's repellent, but it's also beautifully shot. The music is amazing. It's, it's gorgeous. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, it's like you, you laugh despite yourself. Um and i mean just the way it moves it, it it's still i mean i don't know it does not it is not a movie that anyone i think can call boring in any way any any sense no right mm-hmm. um but you know it's like the film like the outrage is there but it's but it's latent it's not it's not obvious it's not evident it's not explicit um so the the thing I always say that, like, if you find Kubrick's movies cold, there's that that's there isn't something wrong with him. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> like, and, and I mean, that, that, you know, that's the thing with Barry Lyndon for me. It's like, I you know, the people who called it cold, I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, I'm <laughs> watching this movie like maybe you're anti-human, you know, like, mm-hmm. um but uh, but again, I mean, Clockwork Orange* in some ways is the most extreme case of this of a, of a film like where the the object itself, the the things that are happening on screen and the way they're presented, is not necessarily the way he wants you to receive it. Right? He wants no, you to kind of have exactly.
0: a exactly. Kind Almost of like, uh, taxi driver, blue velvet, like these other films that are, I always said are my red flag dating movies. Like, you know, I think my, my nightmare guy would be someone on their letterbox to have, uh, blue velvet, clock records, taxi driver and river's edge as they're like, four <laughs> favorite films of all time. Yeah, we, like, well, don't yeah. go anywhere with, the, with that person, but right. it just, yeah. it depends how they see these films. Sure, sure. Are they assuming, like, Travis Bickle is the hero? And so, by showing it, we are in Alex's world, and so we're seeing things the way that you know, like in Barry Lyndon, we're getting a narrator showing us things sometimes or telling us things before we see them or he's commenting on the situation. But we are very much in the first person perspective of um, Alex, essentially mm-hmm. uh, watching it this time and then doing a little reading. I wanted to rewatch and I didn't get a chance to, but Lindsay Anderson's If mm-hmm. Again, because I was reading that um. Malcolm McDowell had like no idea how to play this part and you know Kubrick wasn't really giving him a lot of information because I think he worked with actors extraordinarily well but he didn't he respected actors and I don't think he wanted to tell them exactly how to do their job because he knew that it was it was different um and it was something he couldn't do and that they were bringing to the role like if he chose them there was a reason for it And he said, um, Malcolm McDowell, that the person who unlocked something for him was Lindsay Anderson saying a shot in the movie, if where he like laughs at a a weird time, or there was an expression he gives toward the camera. He said, that's, that's Alex. And, um, that's what he did. He said, play that. And he played it through the whole movie. And so it made me think, ah, I should watch these two together. But, um, but yeah, I think uh it's an extraordinary performance. Um, I am somebody I grew up playing the piano since I was very little. So like Beethoven was my favorite composer. So you had huh. Sing It in the Rain, you have Beethoven, and it was like, wow, <laughs> when I saw this movie, it was like, are you attacking all of my favorite things? But that was again kind of the point and why he's doing it. Um and yeah, it is. A gorgeous film. I mean, you see homage to this movie everywhere. Like um, I just revisited *Phantom Thread* recently, and you know them barreling down the streets and those narrow, uh, the, the speed. You just see it, and you're like, "Oh, he took that right from there." And watching all of these movies, and then you think, how many people took things from Kubrick or um, are paying homage? And yeah, it's it's definitely a film that everybody should see, but it's one that yeah, you want them to talk about, I think it's important to read the book. I was wondering uh, your thoughts on the book.
3: I
1: read the book years ago. Um, yeah, yeah.
2: And,
1: and, I, and I, you know, I, I love the book as well. I don't remember it too well, but I remember the film was very faithful to the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny, that, that whole story with the 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 suppressed ending. I um, mean, yes. you know, Kubrick was being a I mean, Kubrick was, I think, I think being a little disingenuous when he said, because uh, at the time, they, you know, they, I think they asked him about the ending. And, yeah. And he was like, "Well, you know, that wasn't um, in that the wasn't, book
0: he got." Yeah.
1: Yeah, in the book that I got, Kubrick was living in the UK by that I point. I know. You know yeah. Like the, 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 he he knew about the ending, like mm-hmm. like you know, I yeah. Mean, he and Anthony Burgess you know, collaborated, they, they, they talked, you know, Burgess was working on the Napoleon movie. I mean, so it's not like Kubrick wouldn't have known about the ending. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit his vision. (laughs) Um, and, and that's important. I mean, I think, I think the film has a great ending, um, you know, yes i think, I think it's a perfect of, ending right? for it. And it, yeah. it you don't quite know exactly what it means you kind of think you do yes but like that final image is kind of is is monstrous because now he's doing his things but everybody's cheering him on it's kind of like yes what the fuck just happened um yeah and then the movie's over you know um mm-hmm. and i think that's a that's a great way to end you know it's a great way to end it um
0: yeah, it's kind of like the abruptness of the strange love ending, you know, with the, I can walk. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, He's yeah. good at his endings, for sure. Oh, yeah,
3: no,
1: definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. And uh so he was working on Napoleon around this time, and that was going to be his next one. But then that leads us to Barry Lyndon, which I know is one of your faves. So I'll let you take it away. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've 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 talked about Barry Lyndon a lot. Um, <laughs> it's probably my favorite movie. I mean, you know, it it, it changes places sometimes with Bertolucci's The Conformist, but yeah, it's yeah. I, I think on the whole, it's probably my favorite film of all time. Um, and it's funny because I mean, I've told the story many times, but you know, the 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 thing about Barry Lyndon that we always say is, oh, you have to see it on a big screen.
3: You,
1: know, mm-hmm. you have to let the images envelop you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I saw Barry Lyndon in, uh, I mean, it's almost comical. I saw it at at the Yale Film Study Center, uh, uh, again. Um, it was my freshman year of college, but but it wasn't in a projection room. They, they had this little um, little kind of office space with these cubicles Um, with a, um, you know, with like a overhead um, fluorescent light. It was just like, you know, formica floors and stuff. Um, And so it was like a little rickety wooden cubicle with a screen about yay big. It was a laser disc, but it was like not even the good laser disc, like the good laser, the good letterbox Mm -hmm. laser disc hadn't been released yet. It was an old janky laser disc of it with like headphones. Um, So it was just like the worst you know, I couldn't turn off the lights. I mean, it was, yeah. Yeah. Change the disc every, you know, hour. Um,
0: yeah. The flipper discs. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and it just, I mean, it wiped the floor with me and that was, that's still, I always say that's still like the best screening of any movie I've
3: ever
1: had. First time I saw Barry Lyndon. And I remember it was, uh, I I could probably even dig up the, the date. It was sometime in November because that night, um, my roommates and I went to the movie theater and saw um, the Woody Allen film shadows in fog, which I had just opened. Oh. So it was whatever, whatever day that that movie opened. It was a Friday. Um, yeah.
0: That was but, around like um, 89. If I remember right. Yeah.
1: No, no, it would have been 91. It would have been okay. Uh, okay. 91. Cause I started college in 91. Um, okay. But, um, but you know, it, again, I mean, Barry Lyndon is, is to me, um, you know, one of the most moving films ever made. The thing that still gets me is, it's not so much that I see something new in it every time. I mean, I've, I've probably seen it like over a hundred times at this point. Um, there, there, I was counting uh, at some point, but,
2: <laughs>
1: but um, my reaction to it is different, like different parts. Like I, so I don't see new things in it, but, but like the film grows up with you, right?
0: With life, you're going to see things differently for sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: And part of it is because it's, it's somebody's life that you're watching. yeah. Um, but, um, but it's, uh, it's so well done that at any given point, there are new things to react to and new things to relate to in it. Um, and that's the thing that, that I find so kind of captivating about that film and why I can just, you know, you put it on right now, I'll, I'll watch it, you know? Um, <laughs> and, um, and there is also this, you know, there's, there's a thing that Kubrick does. And I think this is one of the reasons why uh some people, you know, a lot of people were critical of the film and, and didn't quite get it at the time. You know, we, we talked with Dr. Strangelove and with um Clockwork Orange about sort of this, um not anti-humanist, but, but the, the idea that there is, that the film is not, the whole thing that there is something mm-hmm. almost removed from the movie, Yes. Um, and this comes into play with The Shining as well. Uh, I mean, I have this theory that I that I that I sometimes talk about called earworm cinema, right? And and earworm cinema, you know, the, the way an earworm works is, um, it, you know, any yeah. earworm is like a song that you you, you know, you, furrows, you, yep. you, yeah, that you can't stop hearing in your head. And the theory behind how an earworm works is what's happening is that you're your your brain um doesn't remember it all the way through there's some element of its like it's it it's an incomplete memory of the song so Mm that your brain kind of enters this like weird loop where it's like playing the song over and over in your head to try and um to try and like complete it Mm -hmm. (laughs) right and they say the way to get rid of an earworm is to just like put on the song and listen to it right um i mean earworm cinema is, is a little different but but the idea for me um and i'm you know i mean i've, I've been talking about this for years so i'm i'm fair. it's entirely possible i've talked about it on previous episodes um because i might have even talked about it like when, when we did colin farrell or something um but uh you know there's like an element removed from these movies so they're kind of weirdly incomplete, even though they're, I mean, beautiful and moving, and you can watch it, and it's there, and it's, you know, it's a Kubrick film. But, but there's like something he there's like something he purposefully pulls away, um, and doesn't deliver or doesn't give you that you think you're going to get, and because that like element is missing, the movie becomes like an object of obsession, right? Um, yeah. And and Barry Lyndon is one of those movies, and part of it is you know, because of the way it's shot, um, you know, he's like perfectly realized this world. Um, and you know, the, the costumes are authentic and the locations are beautiful. Yes. I'm like, you feel like there you're
0: are no there. sets. and Right. Yes.
1: You feel like you're in there. Yeah. But it's so like the, the scenes are so locked off and, and the, 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 the pacing is so kind of precise and the movements are so precise in particular um, that it feels like some weird form of life has been drained out of the movie. I remember um, I was watching Barry Lyndon in in college and in in my room and my roommate walked in, he hadn't seen it yet. He has since seen it many times, but, but he, but, but he, he walked in and he was just kind of looking and and he was just, I mean, he was, he was just standing there and it was some scene where like, you know, characters are like standing around talking and, and he's he's watching the scene he's like totally riveted but he's just standing there because he walked in to just glance at the tv and was just like suddenly struck and he's just like he's <laughs> watching it and, and and he said and i'd never noticed this at the time he said this looks beautiful but i'm just waiting for like conan the barbarian or somebody to just come in and just like start chopping everybody because he's like, he's like everybody <laughs> yeah. is so, so
3: still
2: yeah. everybody
1: is so still they're not mm-hmm. moving and it freaked him out um yeah and and i i'd never noticed that like at that point you know at that point i've seen barry lyndon a bunch of times but i, I hadn't noticed that but yes. i realized some of that is you know part of it is I think because of the lenses he's using, uh, you know, for for, for Barry Lyndon. Yeah, to get the light, right. Mm -hmm. You have to modify these NASA lenses to be able to shoot in sort of these low candlelight situations. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's happening is the the, the depth of field is so narrow that, like, if somebody moves, (laughs) they're going to, like, they're gonna like go out of focus right um
0: yes yeah the the, actress talked about that she's like you can't even move a quarter of an inch yeah yeah
1: it's it's part of the design of the movie
0: yeah and and, hogarth paintings yes right and and,
1: and creates this this uncanny feeling that you're like looking into the past through Mm -hmm. through a kind of you know through some kind of lens but like the lens only lets you see <laughs> this one element and you can't see any of it, any of the rest of it. Because of that, like that element is, you know, I mean, he obviously, look, Cooper could have shot a perfectly normal period piece if he oh, wanted. Yeah. He, had, he was he not interested in the that. world. No. And it would have been not that hard for him to just no. shoot a period piece. Um, But he chose to shoot it this way and he, and he chose to, sh- you know, present everything this way. Um, and it becomes mesmerizing as a result um and because you know these people are like removed like we're watching them but they're removed it's like it's like we're not watching them it's not like we're in the room with them it's not like it's not like it's happening in front of us the movie is not a present tense movie it really does feel like we're watching something that happened 200 years ago
0: or their memory of it
1: yeah Yeah. right Mm -hmm. and so so it's this kind of that remove is heartbreaking because we can't, we can, we can relate to them. I mean, there's, you yeah. know, there are things about them that, that are very relatable and very human, but like, because they're so distant from us, it makes it that much more powerful. And, and, and there is this, you know, it's, it's funny because I mean, we didn't talk about 2001 that much, but like 2001 is a movie where I mean, it's called the space odyssey. Right. Um, but it's, it's, the thing that 2001 plays with is time mm-hmm. right? because, because you have these long um, shots of, you know, space and these long shots of like um, you know, spaceships docking or people yeah. getting in the spaceship or people jogging in the spaceship, but, but they go on, these shots go on and on and on. And yes. On. What mm-hmm. makes the film immersive is the length of those shots. Like the thing that yep. is, like, it, it tries to create a sense of, what space will be like through the um through the uh the modification of time. Yep. And and Barry Linden does the opposite. It tries to give you a sense of what time is like through the modification of space, right? Because we're watching these people, they're not moving, and then the, the slow zooms, right? Yes. Um, the slow zooms are, I mean, he's not he's not using tracking shots, he's using zooms. So it's like this, you know, you, you'll you'll focus on a detail and then the, the film slowly zooms back to reveal sort of the context, but it's like it every scene becomes more and more distant as a result of it. So you're kind of yeah. aware of the passage of time. And and the other thing I you know notice is that like the most distant shot in the film is also the oldest shot in the film. It's that first shot of Barry's father in the distance. Yes. Um, right. When you're trying and that,
0: to figure out. Yeah, exactly.
1: And that's the most distant memory in the film. That's the sort of, that's the thing that happened before everything else in the movie has happened. Right. And so as a result, it's the most temporally distant and the most spatially distant. Um, and it's like yes. the thing that happens throughout the film. It's like by playing with the distance, it creates the sense of time. Um, And and I just find that, I I find that incredible. (laughs) I find that so moving. Um, It's
0: so fascinating. And I think listening to you, it also just illustrates how even though he's making a film in a completely different um, time and space, all of these films are kind of informing the next one. Like he wouldn't have done it this way without doing that in 2001 with the longer takes. And the longer takes actually were in Dr. Strangelove, you know, needing uh, to let Peter Sellers just riff for like Mm -hmm. 10 minutes and having to change out the film. And, you know, like all of these movies. And then of course, Clockwork Orange was right before this. And that's a film as we were talking about which is from perspective, or the way the story is told and what we're being presented is his point of view. But like, we shouldn't be the thing we're being presented isn't actually the thing, the way we should see it. And this is something that he does with Barry Lyndon. And it also then leads into The Shining because um, Barry Lyndon has like chapter, um, you know, prologues. And, you know, there are text uh, things that fill the screen and we have a narrator and we have, uh, we're trying to catch up with information and listening to you describe the way some of these are shot. It also seems sometimes like we enter scenes in the middle. Or as a person walks into a room and you know something happened before you were in the room, but you don't know what it is. And if you ask the person on the left, they're going to tell you it was one thing and the person on the right will tell you it differently. And so this um, sort of disoriented, uh, it's a memory, but you know, the narrator has it one way and what are we actually seeing? Uh, That's something that really goes into the idea of what are we being presented and watching madness and uh, The Shining, essentially. But yeah, I think that's all really brilliant. All the techniques at play in uh, Barry Lyndon. It is one of the most beautiful films. And I love what you said about watching it um, under those inauspicious conditions you know in college just on a small little screen i know the cubicles you were talking about like that that kind of um library or or university setting um i think that's perfect uh it sort of like i will notice sometimes when i share um movies i'm watching you know you get like the snobs who live in wonderful rep cities and that's wonderful but (laughs) you know somebody will say i rented it and it was great well you didn't really see it because you didn't see it on, you know, and a good movie is a good movie, no matter what. Um, but watching these, I was extremely glad I was in the situation I was in now because uh, during the pandemic, I needed to upgrade my television. um and so I wanted to go four k. And I was thinking of because I watched so many foreign films, like,, oh, I'll just get sixty inches. It's fine. And there was a massive sale. sixty was out, then sixty five was out, and i'm I'm measuring, and I'm like, you know, technically, I could do seventy-five. So I guess the sale is so good, I'll just do it. And so I got it. And at first, when that thing came, it was like the like, what did I do? This thing is too huge here. Um, and now it's like when you watch a Kubrick movie, you're like, thank goodness I have the sound and the screen because it's the perfect way to watch these. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's you know, it's still. I mean, the best way to see these is oh, still, in, like, the theater, sure. in the theater for sure. In theater or. I mean, yeah. it's, a little, it's a different thing, but look, I'm, I'm, I, you know, there's no bigger proponent than me for the theatrical experience. Oh, God, yeah. Like 90%, 95% of the films I've seen, um, you know, I saw on video. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: I'm I mean, not comparing those. Yeah. Video it's like, serious. it's like, you know, if you get a yeah. chance
1: and no. you know, like, I mean, I've seen Barry Lyndon in every single format imaginable. I've seen, in 16, I've seen it in 16 millimeter. I've seen it in like really scratched up faded 35 millimeter. I've seen it in a, uh, you know, like a gorgeous DCP. I've seen mm-hmm. it in, you know, middling 35. Uh, I've seen, you know, the Yale film archive has this beautiful print of it. They have this deal where, when studios do 4K restorations of, of films, they get to strike a 35 millimeter print of, of those films. Oh wow! The, the 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 caveat being that those prints can't screen anywhere outside of Yale. <laughs> so okay. sure. So like, which makes I mean, you know, like a, we're, we're going to be moving there uh, after the summer. So, but like, nice. New Haven, I mean, New Haven is like not a great movie going city, uh, but. They do have the Yale Film Archive; these amazing thirty-five millimeter prints that can only be watched oh. in the screening rooms. Um, you know, they have like the Godfather four K restorations, and but, but in thirty-five. Um, so, oh,
0: that's amazing. Um,
1: so, like once I mean, I saw I saw their print of th- Barry Lyndon um, a couple of years ago, several years ago. In fact, I, I introduced it, um, and you know it. it 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 looked so incredible. Um, oh. But like that was the thing. It was I was back in the place where I had seen it on that janky laser disc. In fact, yeah. they still had that laser disc. Like did I took a picture with it? Um they still had Michael <laughs> Kerbel, Michael Kurbel, the guy I mentioned was there and we took a picture with like the janky laser disc right after our screening oh, and, Um I love that. So it's like it's like everything is, you know, it's it's fine. It 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 works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But- the, the, I'm sorry. But I was going to say uh, there was one th- Oh, the other thing about you mentioned the narration in Barry Lyndon. It's the other thing that always fascinates me because the narrator is, you know, third person. Um, yes. You know, omniscient. Um, the novel is first person, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, Redmond Barry tells his story, and he's an unreliable narrator. Yes.
3: You
1: know, but. Um, but the, the, the language of the narrator is actually taken in many cases, verbatim from the, from the novel, the, the incidents in the film are different from the incidents in the novel in many cases, but the narration is actually very similar, except that they've just changed the, the, the point of view. Um, and I always found that fascinating because, because it creates this extra layer of, I mean, again, we're talking about time. Yeah. Uh, it, Face this extra temporal layer because, you know, we're watching this thing that, that happened, you know, and we're watching, you know, these authentic, presumably authentic costumes and everything. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's almost like we have a vision into the past. But yes. then over it is this layer of, um, of language and narration that doesn't feel 18th century. It actually feels like Thackeray's era. It feels Victorian almost. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so there's this kind of, so it's like it's already like a century, um, has. It's like a century between the narrator and the occurrences in the film, and then you have the the titles, right? Um, which add a whole other layer, right? Because because the titles are not the narrator. In fact, that you know, if you remember, the, when the intermission comes the narrator's voice fades out, (laughs) right? I mean, it's almost like the film is making you aware that the narrator too is actually a part of the story. And the narrator too is like a hundred years removed from us. He's not a narrator of our, our, he's not a contemporary of ours. We're listening to something. We're listening to a guy a hundred years ago talking about something that happened a hundred years before that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then, so when, at the end, when it says, you know, they are all equal now. He's also talking about the narrator. You know? Yeah, like, like he's dead too. You know, yeah, um, clearly exactly. this is somebody in 1875 narrating this. This is somebody in like 1875 narrating this. Um, so, you know, there is that sense of the past, and and kind of, you know, you become more aware of it because of these these like doors of perception. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think that's also a. A thing that that's very moving about the film um you know you become more aware of time it doesn't make time disappear if anything it makes it more vivid um but yeah you
3: know that's another thing about Barry Lyndon, I love.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and listening to you i wanted to know um because i am unfamiliar with the book completely um what are what are your thoughts on the book to the film any
1: well the, the, the book is the book is really interesting um i i i I think the film is better. Um, yeah. The book is, the book is fascinating. The other thing I was, I was going to say was, so the, the thing I just said about sort of the, the way the narration works and it's, if you read early drafts of the script, the narration is first person. Um, So he originally conceived. Oh,
0: really? The film,
1: yeah. He originally conceived of it as first person. Um, There's an interesting story that Tatum O'Neill tells. Um, Tatum O'Neill, Ryan O'Neill's daughter mm-hmm. is Ryan O'Neill's daughter and she wrote a memoir many years ago yeah. um, and and part of her memoir is about her time in, um, in the UK and Ireland while Barry Lyndon is being shot so um, Tatum O'Neill and Ryan O'Neill star in Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon together um, mm-hmm. and Ryan O'Neill if I remember correctly, um, Ryan O'Neill takes custody of his kids uh, from his wife, who mm-hmm. is maybe the only other person in the world who was um, less qualified to parent two kids than Ryan. O'Neill, yes, right? that's I mean, what I've was, heard.
3: Yeah, yeah, she was
1: in, she was in really bad shape. He had to take them. Yeah. So he takes. But he's also a, a terrible parent. <laughs> yes, he admits this in his in his book too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Um, But he had to get them. Um, He and Tatum are in uh, Paper Moon together. And then when he goes to make Barry Lyndon, she comes to stay. Um, She actually comes to stay and and she spends her time with um, the Kubrick family. Mm -hmm. She's young. She's like nine or something. I mean, maybe even younger. Um, And um, and she becomes very friendly with... um, with Vivian Kubrick, who is um, Stanley Kubrick's youngest daughter. Yes. And Vivian Kubrick is a little older than her, though. And Vivian, Vivian is, like, very cool. She's, you know, she's very hip. And the Kubrick daughters were all, I think, you know, th- I think they were they played a big part in convincing dad to cast Ryan O'Neill in the movie, <laughs> you know, because he was a
2: big <laughs> symbol at the time. Yeah.
1: And big, big movie star and everything. Um, and I think, by the way, he's, he's great in the movie. He um, is, yep. Uh, But like Ryan O'Neill comes in, Ryan O'Neill is a man who is, you know, I mean, very, I think, egotistical, uh, and very Mm -hmm. full of himself. He's also, you know, I mean, there's the story he's, I mean, I think he's told the story and Tatum O'Neill tells the story is like when he finds out that she's been nominated for an Oscar, uh, he hits her, you know, he hit her. And, and, you know, I think he was always, you know, very, um, you know, felt awful about, but, you know, it's, it's, but he, I mean, he was a mess, Mm -hmm. um, so and then Vivian Kubrick, being young, and she's got like you know Ryan O'Neill is is here, uh, and she kind of like starts this weird sort of flirtatious relationship with Ryan O'Neill, and Ryan O'Neill like again, <laughs> the man has no boundaries, you know he kind of like I mean they, they don't do anything, but he kind of reciprocates, he he kind of has this like yeah flirtation. Right, and and I mean, Vivian Kubrick is like really young at this. This is <laughs> totally inappropriate. They're not doing anything again. Yeah, but he's reciprocating more than he should. I again. I, mm-hmm. I okay, and, and then, um, and then, of course, Stanley Kubrick finds out about this and oh. is livid and is like mm. wants to fire Ryan O'Neill. Um, and but like this is halfway through production at this point, if I understand correctly, and and he can't. I have this. I don't know if it's I don't know if I read this somewhere or if it's just a the theory I have because it's been a few years since I looked up all this stuff, but but um but I'm convinced that that is when the narration of the movie changed from first person to third person. Ooh. I'm convinced that, that is when Kubrick I'm convinced that Kubrick was just like, well, I can't fire him, but he's not narrating my fucking movie. <laughs> you
3: know?
1: But then like that tiny little decision, I mean that's t- you know it's not tiny, but like that changes everything. Ridiculous yeah. event prompts this mm-hmm. change. That then completely changes the context of the film, yeah. Um, which I think is a great example of like how absolutely just fly by the seat of your pants filmmaking winds yep. up deep, even for somebody like Kubrick.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the most amazing story. My goodness! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. What we're saying is, I mean, he introduced the movie at Yale, but, you know, if you show Barry Lyndon fly out, Bilga, and he'll tell all of these stories. Yes. Yes. That's amazing. Well, taking it from uh, narration and writing and stuff changing from the book to the the film, we should probably go to The Shining, which, you know, Stephen King doesn't love. But oh my goodness, one of my favorites. I I love The Shining. So I talked about it with Sean Burns when we did our episode on Jack Nicholson, but we went more from an acting perspective. So talk to me about this one. You saw it when you were little as a latchkey kid. And uh, you know, I'm very impressed too, because this is a film that requires, especially a, a kid Um, maybe one who had been exposed to contemporary movies moving a little bit faster. I love that you were able to just go with the pace of the film and see the tension and it played like, you know, gangbusters on you.
3: Yeah. It's, it's
1: funny because, because, you know, subsequently later when I, when I, I mean, I've I've now rewatched the shining many, many times, but like when I later sort of caught up with it, after that. And I mean, I'd probably seen it another time after that, when I first initially became interested in Kubrick more as a, you know, when I was getting more into cinema, but, but it really, I was really surprised. I was like, wow, this is, this is like very deliberately paced. I, you know, yeah. How the hell did I, how the hell did I say engaged? Um, <laughs> yeah. It
0: establishes a lot in that yeah, first
1: yeah. chunk.
0: And, mm-hmm. and
1: um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I mean, that's a film that, I mean, Barry Lyndon had um, a contentious reception. You know, yes. a lot of people didn't like it. I think it it didn't, it kind of flopped financially. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still nominated for a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director. I mean, there were, you know, it did win some Critics Awards. It won a bunch of technical awards. So it's not, you know, it. it while a lot of people were like, yeah, that's the one Kubrick film that doesn't quite work you know, they were wrong, obviously, but it still sort of had, you know, a sort of respectable response. Um, although Kubrick himself, I think despite the fact that he, he defended Barry Lyndon, um, I mean, Leon Vitali told me that, that Kubrick was really wounded by the response to that film uh, oh. and, and, that, and that it was only years later sometime in the nineties, um, when, um, you know, Channel Four or the BBC or somebody had like a Kubrick season. It's so funny, like the idea of Stanley Kubrick watching his movies on like TV, <laughs> with, yes. like um, with like the commercials and stuff. I mean, yeah. who does that? Um, but but yeah, um, but he must have. You know, but but Leon Vitali said that that he and Kubrick watched it, uh, and and afterwards Kubrick was like, "Huh, that's you know, it's actually pretty good." You know, like he he himself like it took him that to that long to sort of accept that no actually barry linden kind of rules um
0: yeah the, the you might shining. be too close to it and yeah. you know it's on such a different stage internationally yeah uh, and also
1: filmmakers I, I find that filmmakers you know they do like uh, stuff like box office and critical reception and stuff that does have an effect on them like they they live with that stuff um yeah to this, by, to this day
0: sorcerer my god yeah yeah
1: or, or like uh you know tarantino still thinking that jackie brown is somehow a failure which is like no dude it's a masterpiece like <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: one day you'll understand you know yes. um or billy wilder you know billy wilder if you read the inter- interviews with billy wilder like the films of his that didn't make money were the films of his that he was like thought were yeah
0: were, or were, were mm-hmm. and it's
1: like no actually they're good <laughs> you know yeah. um yeah But, um, but yeah, so, uh, but The Shining was, I mean, people hated The Shining. Uh, I know, yeah. And and there's a great, uh, there's a, there's a great book called Conversations with Clint. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but you might have. It's a series of interviews with Clint Eastwood. Um, and it's by a guy, um, who, who did these interviews for Rolling Stone.
3: Or it was,
1: it was. I don't know if they were all for Rolling Stone. I think some of them were for Rolling Stone, but they never ran. Oh, okay. It's like a series of of interviews with Clint that never ran. And it's like a book-length interview. Um and, mm. and they're done at various points um in his career. But one of them is right after uh The Shining. Um Nelson's
0: Lost Interviews. I see it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's
1: it's it's actually a really, really fun book. I need to um, read that.
0: Yeah, and, and and
1: one of them is you know from nineteen eighty, um, and Eastwood has just because he's Warner Brothers, the same studio as Google. Yeah, and he's just seen The Shining, and and the writer has also seen The Shining, and and it's like there's like five pages in it of them talking about how terrible The Shining is oh and my what God. embarrassment and how everybody at the studio is really embarrassed. That like this is like a huge, huge blow <laughs> to reputation. Oh that my film God. is like a complete disaster. It's like a real like existential moment for the studio. They don't know what to do. Like I, it's it's great. <laughs> it's great. It's like this okay. is, yeah, it's yeah. Been four pages talking about what an absolute unredeemable piece of shit the shining is. <laughs> um, and and you know. But I think what happened with The Shining was, and, and so you know, it's got like Razzie nominations and stuff. I mean, it's it was a it was a disaster critically. But and I think it opened soft, but I think Kubrick had a deal whereby it had to stay in theaters for a while. And it actually wound up being kind of a hit. Um, it just stayed in theaters and it just kind of built and built and built and built. So by the you know, by the early 80s, when I see it on TV, like The Shining is has already like become an iconic movie. But its initial reception was, "Oh my God, what a disaster! Stanley Kubrick has lost his mind. Uh, this like nobody's gonna recover from this." Um, and that was The Shining. <laughs> wow! Yeah, <laughs> which is why, which is why, whenever I I wind up in a situation where I'm like defending some movie that everybody hates, some new movie that everybody hates, I'm like just you fuckers wait.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. No, it's important. Yeah, to, uh, you know, everybody sees something different. And yeah, (laughs) yep, exactly. No, I remember when I saw this, um, I I was completely captivated. And then I wanted to show it to everyone that I knew that hadn't seen the movie. Uh, I remember watching it with a relative who was a police officer at the time. And and they were like, at first, like, you know, is this even scary, the glacial pace, and then it just sneaks up on you. And it got to the point where he had to go in the basement to get something. And he actually needed to go pick up the dog from the couch and bring the dog down the stairs with him. And I thought it was really funny. I'm like, yeah, tough guy, you know. And um, it's a movie where I think, you're in it before you realize you know it's like uh when you're you're swimming or the lobster in the pot that's cooking you know like you don't Mm -hmm. know that you're in danger until you're in danger and so you know you're you're walking around this place it's a big maze you're finding out where like the canned goods are and you don't really know what's going on and then all of a sudden oh shit when did this become the scariest thing ever and i love that in filmmaking i also am one of those people like. If there is a kid who's, like, a little weird or creepy, that is the scariest thing to me, like, ever. And this is one of those movies where, you know, where there's the kid and uh, the scene with him and Halloran where he gives him that, like, thousand-yard stare. And it just wigs me out. I mean, oh, there's so much good stuff in this movie. Um, I've heard different things. I've talked to actors who think Jack is... You know, I mean, they love the film, but they're like, Jack is a little too much. He's going over the top. I mean, he is over the top. He is like George C. Scott here. But Mm -hmm. you need that. And I think uh, there are some people who are like, you know, it shouldn't have been Jack because he was in, uh, which was Stephen King's assertion. He was just in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So people are going to know he's bananas like right from the beginning. But I think he does a good job of showing you... This guy wasn't really 100% right away. Like, that opening scene, the interview. I mean, his hair is messed up. He's a little, like... uh, You know, he, he has, like, a 5 o'clock shadow, but it's in the morning. There's all this strange stuff with him. And the way he's acting in that interview where he's, like, agreeing too quickly. And you know there's something going on. I think it's a great performance. The Shelley Duvall, there's a lot of debate about that. I guess Jack said he wanted uh, Jessica Lange originally, but I kind of think you need somebody quirky. You need a Shelley Duvall who's brings something a little different, that energy, that mm-hmm. alchemy. Um, so talk to me about the actors and uh, your thoughts on them. Um,
1: well, you know, it, it, it's, th- th- they go together, uh, you know, yeah. they're both over the top yeah Um, but it's so clear it's so clear that like we're not watching a marriage unravel we're watching a marriage that unraveled oh yeah um and and that i think is important um you know I, i wrote an article about this uh a few years ago um you know, Shelley Duvall's performance, you know, when I, I mean, when I saw the shot, you know, I, she, her performance always bothered me a little bit too. Like I, I was like, at
0: I'm, first I was, yeah. yeah, I was like, she she doesn't seem like she fits into this world. She's a little, but then you start realizing um, she doesn't know how to act around this person. And, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that was the thing that, that really struck me. Um, so I had seen, I mean, I'd seen the shining many times yeah. and I've seen it theatrically and blah, blah, blah. Um, and um. Uh, and and yeah, you know, her performance, like you know, it, it would grow on me. Like I love The Shining, so it wasn't like I her performance yeah, yeah. was a deal breaker. But I was like, oh, yeah, exactly. it's, it's maybe, maybe, maybe she was out of her element a little bit. And I know yeah. she had her difficulties during production. You know, there's a there's a I mean this this meme goes around that like Kubrick tormented her. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, she had had a breakdown before she yes. went to this movie. Um, Paul Simon had yep. left her, uh, for like her best friend, Carrie yeah. Fisher, but, you know, I, I mean, there was like a, like, this was and like, this was as she was getting on the plane. So she had like just come from like, she was having a breakdown. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kubrick didn't quite know how, how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I don't think Kubrick tortured her. Um, I, I think, you know, I mean, Vivian Kubrick's documentary shows some scenes of him, like making fun of, you know, she says, um, oh, you know, my hair is falling out and she, he holds up like a strand of hair. He's like, You know, um, you know, I probably had a kind of mocking and not particularly compassionate attitude towards her, which was probably not right, but Mm -hmm. but I don't think he, you know, tormented her and, um, Mm -hmm. but I do think they disagreed on things. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously. Um, but so, uh, in 2019, I went to the Cannes Film Festival and at at Cannes, they screened a new restoration of The Shining, Mm um. And it was in like the the, you know, it was in the um the Debussy Theater, which is this one of the, one of the two huge theaters at Cannes. And I sat there, I was like in the front row or something, or like the second or third row or something. And um and I uh you know, I, I sat there watching the shining on this huge screen, and it and it that's when it dawned on me. I, I wrote an article about this at the time, but it was like that's when it dawned on me. Um that this is actually a great performance by Shelley Duvall because because mm-hmm. what I what I realized was happening was this is a this is a woman that is completely traumatized. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. and she's like an exposed nerve, and and Jack Nicholson's character has has already been violent towards her. Yeah, uh, clearly, and he's already been violent towards their son. Yes. There's a whole history there, like so. There, we're really watching this like. We're we're like thrown into the middle of this abusive relationship. We don't mm-hmm. see the abuse, but we see the after effects of it. Yeah. And we see how dismissive he is. Mm-hmm. Um and we see how nervous she is around him. And, yeah. and so on that huge screen, that those two performances and that relationship suddenly made perfect sense. And I was like, oh wait, this is this is this is perfect. So I feel like maybe, you know, like it kind of needs the big screen for that. I mean, at least for me, it did. Oh yeah. Yeah. You you know, um, you know, plenty of people have watched the shining and loved it on TV. So it's not like including me, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that those two performances are again, it's Kubrick kind of not quite giving you what you need, right. What, what you think you need.
0: Yes. Um, Not what you expect is going to happen or how it's going to play, but a little different and making you wonder why. And, um, which kind of makes it richer yeah, yeah
1: and, and and again he's putting you in this situation where you know you have to react to what's what's happening and and it, it you know the real film the the real art is in your reaction to what's happening. It's not necessarily in like the objective reality of what's on screen. Um, the, the other thing about the shining that 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 uh, that struck me after I read the book especially um and you know and and Stephen King, it was a very personal story for him i mean it oh, words on himself and and the character of of the wife is was meant to be like a tribute to his wife who yes. had really kind of you know and, and she was a like in the book she's a she's a tough character she's a headstrong mm-hmm. she kind of gives us good you know and 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 it was meant to be kind of a tribute to his wife and you know so clear kubrick was like well that's not interesting <laughs> you know yeah yeah um, you know um and of course, that was a thing that really offended Stephen yes. King because it was really important to him. Mm-hmm. Understandably, um, and also the the book feels like a movie. Like when you're reading the book, it's like scenes are written as if they were a movie. Like so, you can so totally imagine
2: mm-hmm.
1: this book being turned into a film. And you can totally imagine Stephen King writing it in a way where he's like, he can see the movie in his head. And so when, St- when Stanley Kubrick comes in and makes a completely different fucking movie out of it, you can imagine how frustrating that must be for oh, him. Oh,
2: yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. It's,
1: it's, I mean, you read The Shining and you imagine the movie in your head, but it is not The Shining. <laughs> it's not no. it's a completely different movie. Um, and, and the other thing, and this is where like the whole earworm cinema thing for me really kicks in with The Shining, is it doesn't explain what's going on like no not at all the the book explains everything um Mm -hmm. and and the film apparently they they shot a scene of like her looking through us or either him or her somebody looking through a scrapbook that kind of explained all this stuff they cut that out Mm -hmm. um and you know it's um you know the movie ends and like we don't i mean we see that photo which asks more, you know which asks more questions than it answers
0: um yeah. Or before, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, and the movie and the way it's presented has, you know, just inspired, I mean, room two thirty-seven, which I love because of kind of why you love film, even though oh, yeah. like the, the theories on this movie get increasingly batshit, you know, it opens with a really fascinating thing about um, Native Americans. And, and I guess, uh, I don't know if it was Vitaly. Somebody said that that is the one theory that he would have been interested in. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, they weren't like confirming or denying anything. And, you know, most filmmakers are like, why would I want to explain my movies or, you know, or they might not know why they're doing certain things. Um, but you know, this is a movie that is going to obsess. Everyone is going to see something different. And, I I love that. I love the um, ambiguity of of this film and how when you watch it, you're like, "What's the bear doing? What is this? You know, what the hell is going on in this movie?" And um, that's, I think, the magic of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and um, yeah. I mean, I did, yeah. Leon Leon was. Um, I mean, the Kubrick family was was very upset by Room Two Thirty Seven. I never. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Room Two Thirty Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's about movie love. But I can totally understand how Oh yeah. Yeah. Because also because remember, I mean, they were besieged for years by like weirdos who were obsessed with.
0: Oh God, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So so to them it's just oh god, like why are you?
0: (laughs) No, no. Yes. Leave Um, it alone. Yes.
1: But, but you know, you, you and I can watch a movie like that, and well, like, yeah,
0: like well, that's interesting.
1: Like yeah, like, yeah. Maybe not as crazy, but but like yes. I can totally relate to these people, like, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, um, who see something yeah. and think, wait, is that why that happened, or why he's doing this, and you know, yeah. yeah and and um i mean but yeah that's they're things, not like, rubik's cubes you know film but also are, like if
1: you yeah. made a movie about people who feel that way about barry linden like i'd probably be one of those people you know yes. like, so, so, <laughs> that's like, true. Being obsessed with movies is like a thing like it's yeah. You're my people. yeah um but uh but yeah the the native american genocide uh angle is i think i think it's there oh um, yeah it's right in it the dialogue more Yeah, more so than i mean it was, it's more so in Stephen King's novel and Uh and his novels, but, but it's clearly there. And I I know Kubrick was, was interested in that at the time, Yes, but also, um, you know, I mean, there's the guy who thinks it's about the Holocaust and like Kubrick was obsessed with the Holocaust. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean, maybe he wasn't thinking of the Holocaust
0: informed it.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe he wasn't thinking specifically of the Holocaust when he was making the movie, but but, like, you know, look, the subconsciously, all these things still come into the movies. Um, Yeah. Like The Shining is not his Holocaust movie. He wanted to make a Holocaust movie, but, but, um, but like his obsession with it, I think certainly fuels some some something's in The Shining, um, which ironically enough has like one murder in it, right? I mean, yeah, it's um, but that's the other thing about The Shining that I was going to say was, I mean it it, I mean it gives you the one killing, right? Um, mm-hmm. but also. It um, like I said, it doesn't explain itself. And one of the things we expect from horror is that at some point, it's going to explain what's happening. But now, yes. what's happening might be, super, you know, supernatural. It might be aliens. It might be mm-hmm. demons from the beyond. It might be terrifying. It might be, you know,
0: Jason's mother. Yeah, because yeah. there's a story there.
1: Yeah, like, but like that's one of the elements of yeah. horror. Is that is that at some point it's going to explain it to you and and, yes. and like. That's going to help you sort of process it. I mean, even though it's horror, you're there to have fun. But but yeah. like, you know, it allows your brain to kind of be like, all right, yeah, you know, whatever. It was this, and they solved it. <laughs> they, they 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 killed the demon. They, they did the spell. Whatever, it's gone. I can I can relax. Um, and The Shining doesn't do that, right? I mean, it no. spends all this. I mean, it's a, it's a two and a half hour movie. I know, <laughs> and there are long scenes of people just like walking through corridors. Yes. Like, surely you could have cut one of those scenes short and added a scene explaining what the fuck is happening in this hotel. Or the
0: hot cycle around the, yes. Yeah, like, it doesn't,
1: it absolutely does not explain anything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, again, uh, you know, my theory of earworm cinema is, like, it it doesn't give you one thing that you thought you were going to be getting.
0: And as a
1: result, it becomes the (laughs) and like People haven't stopped talking about it since it came out, you know? Yeah, Um,
0: absolutely. So, yeah. even if they're clint eastwood and they're ragging on it for a couple pages yeah
1: but that's the thing it's like it's like there's a part of me that's like you know what it they're works wrong about this but this is this is the response of of, of people who are like you
0: there's know, something it, to that yeah i'm gonna yeah, keep I mean, there, talking there, there, about it
1: there's certain films where like the response is so angry that you're like
0: this yeah this is not
1: normal like like you're actually responding to something that the film did deliberately and it's mm-hmm. freaking you out like I mean, that's, that's sort of how I look at it. Yeah. Like Clint Clint Eastwood strikes me as somebody who would absolutely be totally freaked out by the shining and really upset by it.
2: I mean, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, it's
1: the exact yeah. opposite of something he would do, you know? Um,
0: yeah. So. Well, earworm cinema, obviously another one that you love is eyes wide shut. We didn't yeah. watch ahead of time. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your love of that or any other kubricks that you think are um worthy of more or closer looking uh by people that you know as much as we love the shining look at these as well or anything you want to
1: they're they're all worthy of closer looking yeah. um i would say the thing about eyes wide shut that i that i still um to this day um have to remind people of because the eyes wide shut now is like canonical i mean it's a classic right oh I mean, yeah
0: it's a christmas yeah, movie yeah yeah,
1: every christmas every single theater in new york yeah. shows eyes wide shut i mean if you said that in 1999
0: oh my god yeah you,
1: you know you would have you would have you would have been you know um you would have been and, institution yep, or as not,
0: bilga says just you fuckers wait, yes. just you fuckers wait yeah <laughs> um
1: no i mean the eyes wide shut was again yeah. um and, and the thing to, to this is the thing I always, I always, I mean, I will always remember this, uh, you know, and people who were kind of in sort of the film community around that time might remember it. So 1998, 99, um, there's this, um, there's the sense that a number of filmmakers who haven't made movies in a while are like finally making movies, right? No, and not those
0: yeah, guys. Well, yeah. well,
1: well there, there are three People that that because I I mean this is like pre social media mm-hmm. internet news group nerd conversations but but I, the thing I remember is George Lucas, um, Terrence Malick, uh Stanley Kubrick, um. Malick releases Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. and very very divisive motion picture um i mean yes it gets nominated for best picture and best director but like some people were really upset that it got nominated and shot yeah. um i mean you know one of my favorite films of all time but 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 like like, I remember, like, really, really vicious fights over that movie. Um, <laughs> people were just like, this guy's forgotten how to make movies. What the fuck is wrong with him? This is, like, disgraceful. Why couldn't it just be Saving Private Ryan part two? You know, it's like, because mm-hmm. Saving Ryan comes out that year. So then it's like, Malik's down.
2: <laughs> <Right>? <laughs>
1: um, then it's like, uh, George Lucas is coming out with, um, again, not Menace. Um, Cause, 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 uh, because listen' it? my comes out June or July, I believe. So, so, uh um, yeah. so Phantom Menace comes out first. Phantom Menace comes out again, big nerd movie fight. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and at this point, Kubrick is like the last hope <laughs> that a lot of these people have. It's like, oh my God, Malick fucked up. George Lucas <laughs> fucked up, even though he's made money. Um, Kubrick, Kubrickle, Kubrick will deliver us. And then Kubrick comes out with Eyes Wide Shut. Of course, at this point, Kubrick has died too. Yeah. Um, but um Eyes Wide Shut comes out, and people are so fucking angry. I remember
0: um, that. Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like, and part of it was the hype, like they thought, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He made an he's gonna make an X-rated movie. Yes, you know? exactly. No, no, that not, was you know? um, and, but then also just like people are, I remember, I mean, I remember having to, I saw it with, at the time, I remember, I did this thing um, that, that Tarantino often talks about doing with, with his, uh, with the directors that he really loves when they have a new movie, out, which is like, you go to the first showing that you can. And this is before I was like being invited to press screening. So it's like
2: mm-hmm.
1: first, like first morning showing on the day of release. So I think I went, but then you go see it again that night. So because because the anticipation is like overwhelming. So you kind of have to see it once to get it out of your system to get the anticipation mm-hmm. out of your system. And then you have to see it again to actually see the movie for what it is. Um and I did that with with Eyes Wide Shut. Morning of its release, I, I I went to the Kipps Bay multiplex. It's like a 10 a.m. screening or something. It was like me and a bunch of old ladies. And I watch it and I was, like, I was like, this is great. This is wonderful. Oh, my God, it's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And then that night I went to see it with like my girlfriend at the time and like her friends and a couple of my friends. Um, and and oh, my God, they hated it.
2: <laughs>
1: and and they were like angry. They were like, I mean, they were talking through the movie because they were like so angry. And then the, and also it was New York. So they were like, this doesn't look like New York. I mean, I remember the thing. Yeah,
0: I remember was- that debate about it.
1: Yeah and I remember people they seized on the like the 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 um the street numbers they're like why are the numbers consecutive yeah, you know in New York it's like
0: on even on one
1: side I'm like Stanley Kubrick is more of a New Yorker than any of you motherfuckers like he yeah. knows what he's doing um but you know but it was like but it was also like its attitudes are so dated I remember there was some review that was like oh it's the sexiest movie of 1956 you know like there was some review that said that and and I remember at the time people were like um people are saying you know our attitudes about sex and relationships are so much more modern and progressive than what this movie is presenting this movie has this very kind of conservative idea towards fidelity and romance and sex and you know and it's kind of terrified of sex and you know and it's mm-hmm. like hiv and all this stuff and and um and they're like you know we're beyond all that we're 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 not this movie is kind of really outdated um and I remember at the time thinking like, well, is it outdated? Like, I don't know that it's outdated. I feel like no. it's, I feel like these are eternal Still, things that yeah. the film is treating. It's not, it's not trying to be of its moment. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the actually the opposite of like Clockwork Orange and Dr. Strangelove. It's not a zeitgeist movie. Um, no. And it's more like, it's more like Barry Lyndon in that sense. You know, it's not mm-hmm. trying to capture your moment. It's trying to capture a moment that speaks to your moment. Um, and then, of course it's based on a you know Arthur Schnitzler novella from 1927 yeah. that that Kubrick had been trying to adapt for, for decades yeah. yeah um but um it uh it it really felt like um you know it it felt like people were were you know they didn't just not like the movie they were angry about the movie
0: yeah um, i remember that
1: so anyway, so I was saying, this. it's like, okay, so so Kubrick's down with eyes wide shut. Um, and then the thing that happens is um, the on the eve of um, the millennium, 2001 is re-released. Um, and I can't, I think it was, a, they, they re-released on the eve of 2000. I don't think they released it on the eve of 2001. It might be 2001. Um and it's a it's a contractual re-release that had been negotiated, I think, by Kubrick before he died.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: you know, Warner Brothers at this point is is I think under new leadership, and they're not they're not going to do anything to promote it. So the movie, so two thousand and one, opens at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York
0: mm-hmm. in
1: seventy millimeter, and it plays like three or four weeks there. But there's no promotion they're like no ads no nothing i find out from a friend that like, hey did you know like 2001 is playing at the Ziegfeld?" i'm like really
2: oh my god go
1: there and i watch it and i watch it again and again i tell other people about it but like it gets no no um no press no advanced press no no marketing um it's just in this theater playing for weeks um and it's like empty the, I, I, I mean i went to see it three or four times during this run wow. and it was, it was it was empty almost every time um and this is a big theater. Um, and I remember a lot of people I knew, though, went and saw it and they were just like, God, what did we ever see in that movie? It's so boring. It's so lame. It makes oh my no God. sense. It's so outdated. So like the the so the, the, the 2001 re-release is a bust and then AI comes out. Kubrick's um, yes. AI comes out. That's 2001. Then we
0: all loved Kubrick. I remember that.
1: Well, no, but what happens is too, AI is a bust. Like, AI was a oh, flop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? But AI was a flop. And I remember there were people there who were like, I mean, there, I remember there was a lot of debate, and especially among movie nerd circles. I mean, yeah, yeah. is there a more, like, fraught situation than Stanley Kubrick dying and Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. making his, like, magnum opus? Um, but um, but AI flops, too. Like, AI is, you know, like, it... it didn't do well and critics were muted and some people were really kind of embarrassed by it. Some people were. So what I'm trying to say is at this point during this like three year period, two, three year period, Stanley Kubrick is down bad, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. It's like his legacy is on the line here because it's like AI flopped, and you know, his name is on it, even though it's not his movie, but it seems like, Steven Spielberg has been, you know, he's Steven Same Spielberg.
0: As his movie. He's like he yes. somehow like yeah.
1: Stanley Kubrick somehow infected Steven Spielberg. Um, 2001 kind of landed with a thud. Eyes wide shut. People are still angry about. I remember, like, I was on a at work. Um, we we went on a retreat uh, to Hawaii. Um, this was the early days of the, uh, of the tech bubble. So I was at a magazine that covered the internet so we could, uh, wow. an office retreat to Hawaii. Um, but I remember I was on a bus, we were going up a volcano in a bus. And, um, and, uh, and I remember, uh, I, I mentioned to, uh, to one of my colleagues that I was, that I loved eyes wide shut and, and he got up and yelled to the bus, hey, he liked eyes wide shut. And everybody just looked at me and started laughing. You know, like this is this is the oh world we're in. Um so uh so yeah, so um, which is that why is today crazy. when people laugh at me about liking train, I'm just like, fuck
2: you. Uh, <laughs>
0: you know. Um but but that's amazing. No, I think because I was like maybe in the college uh bubble of uh, so after AI, people were like, well, it's cause of Spielberg, you know, but everybody like Kubrick would have done it different. So that was a different yeah. school of thought than the, yeah. Oh, the yeah. Cinephiles. But I remember, um, people really bagging on, um, eyes wide shut when it came out for sure. Mm-hmm. And I know you're probably melting in New York, but I do have one question for you that I realized I needed to ask you, mm-hmm. which is about full metal jacket. Uh, that is, one of his most divisive films in terms of the beginning and the yep. end people are always like I like the beginning I hate the end like what is your thoughts on uh, what are your thoughts on that one.
1: Um. I mean, uh, we could do a whole whole episode about is, about. Yeah. I love Full Metal Jacket. Um, I, I think Full it's Jacket. great. Yeah, and I've also had over the years, I've had fun conversations with people. I, I once did a Matthew Modine Q and A at Ellen oh, Draft wow. House, and that was fun because he he still has a lot to say about that movie. I mean, he published the the Full Metal Jacket Diary, which is really revealing, by the way. If wow. Any, anyone who's interested in Stanley Kubrick's process. Should read Matthew Modine's Full Metal Jacket okay. because it's really it's also a great book about acting too and also just oh wonderful life. it's a it's a really it's really wonderful um but um but the thing is you know Kubrick had this reputation of being this like very precise filmmaker yeah um, and the truth is he was actually a very um very collaborative and uh, and you know even allowed people to improvise I mean. Yeah. Obviously, we talked about Peter Sellers, but it wasn't just Peter Sellers. I mean, Leon Vitali would tell stories about Jack Nicholson, obviously, but Leon Vitali would tell stories about how on Barry Lyndon. I mean, I interviewed Leon quite a bit about Barry Lyndon, and one of the things he told me was, "Listen, I I had one scene when I first got hired to do that movie, and it just grew and grew. Like Kubrick liked his performance, and was just like added more and more, and that that whole final duel they kind of worked out like." sitting around figuring it out like it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't a thing that was like Set. planned within an yeah. end of his life um and you see in Full Metal Jacket the extent to which Kubrick was willing to collaborate and willing to let his actors dictate
0: yeah. or help
1: him help him like the drill
0: skills. sergeant and all of that yeah
1: yeah Lee Ermey is improvising right yeah. I mean Ermey is basically doing the thing that he, that he would do right um yeah. and, then, and Kubrick I mean everybody knows the story by now I think but He was supposed to be the technical advisor. Yes, was like this guy's so good. He replaced the actor, um, and and you know cast him. And the the actor who was supposed to do that has some other part in the movie. Um, But uh, you know, and that's a. And and I think the second half also. I mean, they didn't have an ending for the movie, and they like around sort of trying to figure out that ending, um, with Matthew Moudine and 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 those guys, Um, but. you know, it is a film of two different parts.
3: Yes, um, exactly.
1: And the first hour is completely dominated by Lee Ermy's performance, but you know the second half is a is a very different film. But it has to be right. I mean, because mm-hmm. because it's all about. I mean, and, and I'm not the first person to observe is this. That's what the movie's about. But like, you know, it's about creating these people have to go off to war. Yeah. And, and breaking down their personalities and breaking down them, breaking them down psychologically, and then sending them off to war. What um, you
0: expect is not what you get, like what you were saying, earworm sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: exactly. No, exactly. I mean it's still I mean it, Kubrick is kind of the king of earworm cinema. But but um but the thing about you know the second half is I mean the first half is the guy you know um the guy who goes mad yeah it, is the odd man out and and and, yes. and kills himself and, and can't function within the system mm-hmm. second half the guy who goes mad is animal mother and mm-hmm. in some ways um he is the only one who can function properly in that world and 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 everybody has to become more like him um yes so it's really sort of you know, so it's, it's like a yin yang structure, almost like it's like it's they like need the each other. Half, yeah, the second half is the opposite of the first. Half. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. the first half is so precise, and 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 you know, despite the improvisation, it's it's so kind of stripped down, and 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 the mm-hmm. second half is is chaotic. Um,
0: yeah, so- the first half kind of seemed more like you know quintessential Kubrick, a little more like Clockwork Orange, a mm-hmm. little bit. And then the second half was like him working in this sphere of war and chaos yeah, and yeah. like the end of the shining, you know, things, yeah, yeah everything goes uh, mad. Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: And and it's also pretty, probably, probably, I mean, look, some of it's because of Lee Hermes performance. Like I, I I don't think I've ever read the screenplay to Full Metal Jacket, but um, I don't know that it was supposed to be that kind of movie. Like, I think he got Lee Hermes and he was just like, well, this guy is great, and yeah, he just yeah, run, and he just he just ran with all this stuff, and and instead of really telling the story of that of what's happening in the first half, it became all about that that character, yeah, um, and and the second half was I think a little, and despite the fact that they didn't have like the ending and stuff, the second half is more planned out. I mean, the second half is mm-hmm. more like, you know, I mean, the the book, The Short Timers, which I did read way back when, um, you know, is 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 a bit more. It's a bit closer to the to the book, if I remember correctly. Um and um so he's you know, so so the structure becomes kind of this um this like this like patchwork thing because it was designed to be one thing, but then or Army was so good that he kept the he changed the first half. Yes. So suddenly the second half maybe doesn't quite fit with the first half.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's okay. Um second half is yeah. still really great, like um you know, in the end, the, the, you know, I, th- I think that serves what he's trying to do in the film more than if the second half had.
0: Completely. Did, yeah. Yeah.
1: If the second half had a sort of similar
0: character but, to Lee, mm-hmm.
1: Lee Ermi, like, I think he did the thing that would make his film the yeah. most memorable. And I think it worked. Or if um, they
0: would have carried out the Vincent D'Onofrio type character, like, yeah, no, no, you need the opposite. Yes.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I I love Full Metal Jacket. Um, yeah. You know, it's. um.
0: Great. Well, yeah. I had to ask, and um, I appreciate you taking this time when you're melting out there to talk about. I've run out uh, of water, so. <laughs> I know. I know. I've kept you so long that you ran out of water. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this, Bilga. It was a real Thank treat. you so
1: much, Jen. This was, this was a lot of fun.
0: Of course. You'll have to come back. Another topic. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen.